and welcome to the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Lyon, and I want to thank you for joining me as we explore the world of small grains production and research at Washington State University. We have weekly discussions with researchers from WSU and the USDA ARS to provide you with insights into the latest research on wheat and barley production. If you enjoy the WSU Wheat Beat podcast, do us a favor and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. And leave us a review while you're there so others can find the show too. My guest today is Bill Pan. Bill is a professor of soil science. He has worked in the Department of Crop and Soil Sciences for the past 34 years, teaching soil fertility and plant nutrition courses, and researching nutrient cycling and management, root development, and rhizosphere ecology. He has served as department chairman, director of the Washington Oilseed Cropping Systems Project, director of the WSU Partnership in the Regional Approaches to Climate Change USDA Project, and now is co-leader with Dr. Tao of a NRCS Soil Health Project, while also serving as president-elect of the Soil Science Society of America. Hello, Bill. Hi, Drew. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for being here, and you are a busy man. <laughs> so I appreciate you taking the time to, to come and, and visit with me today. So um, as I drive around, I, I notice that a lot more producers seem to be harvesting their straw. And I also know there's a construction of a straw processing plant going on here in eastern Washington. Can you kind of describe the history and current research activity related to, to that operation, the work that you've done in that area? Sure thing, Drew. Um, this is kind of a cool evolution of an idea that uh, evolved during the mid-90s. And um, I did a sabbatical over at University of Washington, got to know some folks in the pulp and paper engineering program. And Bill McKean, Mark Lewis over there at, at UW, myself, um, some students here and there, uh, started getting together on a project to evaluate the feasibility of using wheat straw for a cellulose fiber source to supplement the uh, wood, uh, wood-based cellulose that goes into pulp and paper making. Okay. So it's actually possible for WSU and University of Washington work together. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Other than uh, Apple Cup Day, it was truly a good Cougar Husky collaboration. <laughs> so given the concerns about potential negative impacts of straw harvesting on soil and water quality, um, what are some of the basic principles of sustainable straw harvesting? Okay. So uh, we've, we've started to develop a list of... Uh, principles, and uh, so I'll go through them, and we got about seven of them. Uh, one is to think about precision straw harvesting, and to try to focus your harvesting, if you decide to do this, on high residue fields that are producing a lot of straw, obviously. So uh, the idea would be not to remove straw from low productivity fields, because you need to return all you can get in those fields to return the organic matter and the nutrients as well as protect the uh, soil surface from wind and water erosion. So uh, pick, pick, the, uh, par- pick the fields that are in uh, highly producing areas and also fi- pick the, possibly pick the fields 
or parts of the fields that are within your farm, um, you know, concentrate on the low-lying areas that produce more rather than the eroded hilltops, for example. Do, do you have kind of a threshold for what, what a high-yielding, low-yielding, which where you kind of draw the line? At, oh, gosh, that's, that's hard harvest? to tell. But, um, you know, I would say, you know, try to avoid fields that are producing lower than 50 bushels per acre. Okay. You know, marginal is kind of... 50 to 100 and then 100, over 100, certainly you can afford to uh, remove some of that straw. Okay, good. Uh, the second thing is um, make sure you leave uh, some straw behind. So don't cut it right to the ground, but leave some standing there to meet soil conservation compliance. And then the third thing is uh, rotate those fields that you're harvesting straw from. So don't go back to the same fields every year. Kind of spread it around to minimize uh, the removal of the, the straw organic matter and nutrients. Um, so spread it around your farm and, and in the region. Um, make sure you try to direct seed back into those fields. So maintain those residues that you're leaving behind on the soil surface to protect from wind and water erosion. Um, fifth thing is to make sure you replace nutrients and organic matter. So you are losing some, uh, some of the carbon and uh, uh, plant nutrients by straw removal. You can do the math on nutrient removal uh, versus additions from fertilizers over time. And so try to avoid mining your soil nutrients. And one way to do this is to think about uh, the co-product that's coming out of this plant, which is actually kind of once they extract the cellulose fiber, they leave behind this co-product, which can be added back to the soil. And it's rich in um, carbon and nutrients that we'll talk about a little bit here. Um, so the sixth thing would be to try to monitor those harvest fields over time to make sure that you're not uh, drawing down nutrients and carbon too, too much um, when you're harvesting the, the straw. And then the seventh one, you actually alerted me to because you had been told or had noticed that um, along the roadsides of, of uh, some of the roads that uh, where people have been uh, transporting straw, that um, weeds are starting to grow along these roadsides, uh, perhaps due to the weed seeds that get dropped from the straw bales. So try to avoid uh, transporting uh, weed-infested straw. So that's that. Those are the seven principles. Okay. You mentioned leaving some straw behind. Do you have some kind of rule of thumb? Is that six inches of stubble, three inches? Of oh, straw? yeah. Let's so the uh, uh, NRCS actually goes by percent cover if you're looking over the top of it. Um, so they don't really uh, take too much into consideration the standing straw, although I know that it really does slow down the wind speed. Uh, so that's why I like to see standing straw. But in terms of just um, soil surface coverage, they like you to maintain at least about 25% uh, okay. soil coverage. So if you were to look at uh, a, a, a soil from overhead, you know, that 25% of that um, would be would be covered with with straw. Okay, so the, the straw harvesting uh, before straw harvesting became uh, something people did. 
people who thought they had too much residues to burn fields. Right. So could straw harvesting maybe be a, a substitute for field burning, which has a number of negative connotations with it. Yeah. Maybe straw harvesting might be a better way of, of reducing straw loads if you think you have too much? Yeah, actually, um, that was one of uh, the motivations that got me interested in this this concept over the years was um, exactly that. And so uh, we thought about this because there was a l quite a bit of field burning going on in, in the uh, 80s and 90s as people started adopting uh, no-till. And then they found out that, well, heavy residue fields, it was kind of hard to no-till your crop uh, seed back into that field. And so um, there, there became a trade-off of burning your field first and then no-tilling. So it was kind of a trade, you could think of it as a trade of uh, soil and water quality for a, uh, uh, a, a detrimental effect on air quality and maybe even health concerns. So that was kind of adventurous uh, that attracted us and, and also the Department of Ecology got involved with funding some of our work. Um, so um, there was, there has been quite a bit of research that's been done uh, by the USDA ARS group here um, looking at that trade-off and they did, actually did uh, replicated field plots I think you were involved with that as well, Drew, uh, looking at um, uh, burning the straw, removing the straw, uh, leaving the straw, those kinds of options, and looking at the effects on um, uh, carbon and nutrient removal, uh, impacts on soil, that, that sort of thing. And so what they found was, and the, they did the experiment at two locations in Walla Walla and Pullman. This was... Dave Huggins, yourself, um, Wayne Thompson was mm -hmm. involved with WCU yep. Extension. And so the basic uh, findings were that about there was about 1.47 pounds of standing straw produced per pound of grain. And that translates to, you know, for a 100 bushel wheat crop or 6,000 pounds of grain produced would produce about 9,000 pounds of uh, standing wheat straw, dry wheat straw. And so um, what you guys found was that during field burn, a full burn would uh, remove about 63 to 90% of that uh, straw biomass, uh, would, go, would go up in the air, and some of the ash minerals then would fall, fall to the ground. Um, <clears throat> Whereas baling removed about 65% of the standing straw, uh, leaving enough straw behind for conservation compliance. And the research has also documented nutrient losses to the system due to burning or baling, and uh, losses of essential nutrients like NP, K, and S uh, were valued at fertilizer equivalents of about $52 and $42 per acre respectively for burning versus baling. So uh, not an insignificant removal of uh, nutrient value by straw removal. Um, and, and that needs to be replaced if you want to avoid uh, nutrient mining. 
Okay, and you mentioned earlier a byproduct of the straw plant being used to replace some of these nutrients and carbon. Are there other ways that the growers can replace or compensate for the losses of carbon and nutrients from straw harvesting? Yeah, so there's obviously, uh, you can replace it in, in, in the way of fertilizers. Um, and, uh, but, you know, when you think about it, uh, using this co-product actually returns the exact uh, ash minerals that uh, you removed in the first place. So it's um, this pulping process is a pretty simple process, and it's not what you would think about for a wood wood uh, extraction, wood pulping process that requires pretty harsh chemicals uh, and some that are kind of nasty to the environment. This is basically just using strong alkali, and so you get that strong alkali plus the, uh, the carbon that's left behind in the lignin, uh, hemicellulose is soluble sugars, and the plant nutrients come back that are, um, that are not volatilized. And so um, just to give you an idea of the scale of this plant, it's, it's going to be uh, at full, running at full capacity. It's going to be processing about 250,000 tons, dry tons of straw per year. And um, so that means it's going to be generating about 160,000 tons of this pulping co-product. And um, so, and they're going to recycle the pulping chemical about 10 times. So it actually concentrates the amount of uh, stuff coming out of the, the non-cellulose stuff that's coming out of the straw that's left behind in the co-product. And uh, once they get done with that, ten times they'll they'll uh, store it away in a in a, uh, a vat, and then they'll concentrate it up to about sixty percent. So they'll kind of evaporate it and make it uh, more heav heavily concentrated, so it's easier to apply, or it's more concentrated for uh, reducing transportation costs. So this will be rich in lignin and, and plant nutrients, and lignin is really the what we think of in soil science as kind of the, the building block of uh, soil organic matter. So if you were to pick one biochemical from straw that you definitely want to return, it would be lignin. Okay. And the cellulose that you use for making straw, making uh, paper and cardboard, uh, actually it gets, um, when you put it in soil, it gets oxidized pretty fast by the microorganisms. It's, it's considered pretty uh, good uh, microbe food that they go after okay. right away. So it, it goes up into the atmosphere as CO2 right away. Lignin is more stable, stays behind, builds that soil organic matter. So that, that's a good thing to uh, think about when you're returning this stuff. Um, so there, there's ongoing research. Uh, there's past research on the benefits of that. Uh, ongoing research by Dr. Tao and myself on... Uh, Thinking about ways to mix mix the co-product, maybe with some lime to uh, uh, provide a unique liming uh, soil amendment that uh, might be able to move further in the soil. There's some ongoing uh, lab research on that right now. Uh, other uses of this co-product are kind of interesting. They've already used it for rust, road dust abatement, so spraying on roads to keep the dust down on. Uh, gravel roads, uh, rural roads, and forest service roads. Uh, there's actually an industrial lignin uh, market for using it as a starting chemical for uh, producing a number of things. 
and um, and then there's this uh, prospect for for returning to the soil, which I believe needs to happen to make really make this a sustainable system. Um, so we we did a bunch of research on this back in the early 2000s and found that it it did improve both. Uh, well, all three of chemical, biological, and physical properties of soils. So it's pretty interesting stuff. Um, and in itself, even without adding lime, it is a mild liming agent since they use a strong alkali to right. pulp the straw in the first place. And so all acidification is becoming quite an issue, especially here in the Palouse. Right. So that might yeah, be a so, benefit. Yeah, I think so. Has there been any work done on, or will there be some work done on, if I remove uh, eight tons of straw from my field, how much of this uh, byproduct would I need to put on my field to replace the the nutrients and the carbon I just took oh, off? Oh, yeah. Tons, so. uh, no, well, uh, we haven't developed any tables like that yet, but that would be a good extension product, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of a calculator. Yeah, so you know, if I, if I as a producer know about how much I removed, this would tell me how much of this product would you replace bet. that. And out of that uh, project that I mentioned with you and Dave Huggins, uh, funded by Department of Ecology, the, there's numbers in all of that data where we could generate okay. a calculator like yeah. that. Okay. Yeah. Neat. So um, if, if our listeners wanted to find out more about this work, is there a website they can go to or has some of it been published somewhere that they can go find or is that yet to happen? Yeah, well, we have uh, uh, several research publications on various aspects of the system like that. Um, uh, it's not housed in a good place, so maybe we could put it up on your uh uh, grains Network site. Okay, small grains. Yep. Okay. And um, so, yeah, we could we could easily do that. Okay. Do you have any final comments about this uh, rather exciting new area of work? Yeah, no, I, I think it's really uh, an exciting uh, story for Eastern Wa Washington uh, agriculture. It's really unique because... Um, this is actually the first pulp mill of either, of any kind, whether wood or straw, that's been built in the U.S. in over a decade. That's kind of remarkable, and um, and it's also going going to be one of the largest straw pulp mills in the world. Uh, so I believe if it, it's successful, it will serve as a model for more plants nationally and internationally. Um, in terms of impacts on rural community, uh, Columbia Pulp intends to hire about 25 to 30 people uh, with their operation down there in little Starbuck, Washington. So I think that'll be a great uh, boon for uh, the economy of Starbuck and Dayton. Um, so just thinking uh, in general, if uh, three tons per acre are harvested from productive fields to feed this, feed this plant, it's uh, going to require about 83,000 acres per year uh, to be harvested to provide that uh, source of straw. So we obviously have enough acreage. We can move, move that uh, uh, harvested acreage around from year to year. Um, they like to think in terms of maybe a 50-mile radius of, of the plant to keep it economical for transportation of the straw. Um, and then we just recommend uh, careful monitor, 
soil monitoring of the harvested fields just to make sure that uh, you know you're not doing any detriment to the the soil quality and uh, and then just you know we're going to be working with the folks down there at, at the plant to uh, do more ongoing uh, field research we'll be working with the extension folks like uh, Paul Carter down there uh, to do some on field on farm uh, trials of the, the application of the co-product. It sounds like an exciting technology that uh, can bring some profitability, but we like many things we have to be able to do it in a way that's sustainable for the for both the company who's producing it and for the farmers in the fields uh, who are participating in that activity. Absolutely. And, you know, it's it's one of these rare kind of value added uh, products uh, industries that's coming coming to Eastern Washington, which we don't have that many. Um, and so I think it's going to be good for the, for the economy as well, hopefully. Okay. <laughs> Very good. Thanks for uh, sharing your time with us. Today, All right, Bill. Thanks, Drew, for inviting me. Thanks for joining us and listening to the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. And leave us a review while you're there. If you have questions for us that you'd like to hear addressed on future episodes, please email me at drew.lyon at wsu.edu. You can find us online at smallgrains.wsu.edu. You can also reach out on Facebook and Twitter at WSU Small Grains. The WSU Wheat Beat Podcast is a production of Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. I'm Drew Lyon. We'll see you next week.